What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rubbing Muscle Podcast. I'm your host, as always, TJ, and this is episode 113, where we are joined by Dr. Jacob Breed of Renaissance Periodization and the University of Northern Iowa. Uh, Jacob is an incredibly smart man, but he's also a really good coach who has a deep background in rugby, having been a head rugby coach himself, and also been a performance and data consultant for USA Women's Rugby National 15s team. Um, I ended up going into a lot of detail about this position that he held, how we can use different performance data and what we can kind of do with it, what it really means, and all the nuances of that that are involved with data collection, rugby, and sports performance in general. And this ends up being a really, really good conversation because it shows the limitations that we have of the science, but also shows that how effective it can be once we do finally get it in place. And from this conversation, you can see how deep uh, Jake is in the research. He was involved in numerous studies that are applicable and what we will use for... Um, shaping our programming today and, and I'll certainly be using it with my athletes um, and just it was a real good all-around conversation a real good chat about uh, how we can you know influence and make better rugby players and how we can sort of see you know what sort of trends are happening and why individualization is just so important at the top of that ladder because every single person every single player is different and they're also different at different stages of their careers and this is something that hasn't like we've discussed it before on the podcast but we really haven't brought it to this deeper light or, or, or really highlighted in this important a way as we have on this podcast um and before i get into the episode also wanted to give a shout out to faz from faz lift for giving us a five star review on itunes he says very informative content delivered in an entertaining and meaningful way well worth a listen so faz if you're interested in getting three free months of world-class rugby strength and conditioning delivered right to your phone just reach out to me and i'll get that taken care of otherwise let's get into this episode this is episode 113 with dr jacob reed all right, guys, so we are honored to be joined here by Dr. Jake Reed of Renaissance Periodization. How are you doing, Dr. Jake? I am doing well. Thanks for having me. No, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, as I said in the intro, I, well, as I said, I already introduced you uh, beforehand, but if you'd like to give like a quick sentence, actually, just to, uh, if you were to give yourself, describe yourself in one sentence to our audience oh. by yourself, what would you say? <laughs> Describe myself in one sentence. Um, I'm a uh, strength and conditioning coach and online diet coach with an emphasis in athletic um, athlete monitoring. That's awesome. We're, we have very similar backgrounds, uh, Jake. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. So I, I mean, I'm intrigued to talk shop with you today, and um, we'll see where this goes. But I wanted to kick things off just to discuss your, your former role that you used to do with USA women's rugby. Um, yep. Would you like to go into that a little bit and just tell us, tell us how, how you got into that and um, where it sort of took you? For sure. Um, I have a, a friend who's a strength conditioning coach at James Madison, uh, Christian Carter, and he was um, um, talks to, uh, to from one of the um, managers uh, of the women's national team about um, helping out or if, she, uh, if he knew anybody that would be able to help out with some data management and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he immediately um, mentioned me, and so they contacted me, and I um, spoke on the phone with Pete Steinberg, um, the head coach at the time, and um, he 
liked what I could help them out with um, in reference to um, kind of managing their data set. And what they had done was over the course of, I think it was in two, back to 2009, I believe, uh, so when the data set was initiated, they were doing um, match uh, analytics, but from a like actually watching all of the, the entirety of the match and then coding in each individual ruck, Maul, pass, tackle, I mean, you name it. Anything that could be recorded, somebody was actually watching the video and recording it um, for each individual athlete. Huh. And so we actually, um, they had a very large data set that, well, large as in like big for our field anyway, not in like true, true data analytics, not millions and millions of rows, but there are a few thousand. Um, and my goal was to look at the data and see if we could find anything meaningful from it. Um, it, it just it, and it was a um, it was a cumbersome process, but um, I, I re unfortunately we really didn't get a whole lot that we could take out. Some interesting things for sure, um, but that was pretty much my role. Um, at least offsite, I did travel mm -hmm. with them. Um, I started in June 2016 with USA. And I went to the um, Salt Lake tournament and did, just did actually some on-site consulting. Based on my experience with strength conditioning, I was able to help with some recovery sessions, um, led a strength training session, uh, just kind of actually helped out where needed, and then was able to talk with Coach and the high, other high-performance team about uh, potential approaches based on what I knew with monitoring and recovery and strength conditioning and how we could uh, prepare the team for the World Cup in 2017. Um, and that was kind of my last um, time with the team was after that World Cup. Interesting. So I want to go back to you said that um... – you took so much data from each each match, right? Um, did you take any data also from their training sessions and stuff, or was it literally just uh, a way to analyze each match? Uh, it was a way to analyze each match. Um, they had uh, some data. I, you know, I tried to help out as much as I could with the data that they did have. And an interesting thing from the, the monitoring realm, it's that you, know, you don't want to be additive to the coach or any of the rest of the staff. You really just want to be somebody that's, you know, you uh, everybody always has a lot of data. So what do you have? What can I do with it? How can I help analyze it to enhance the process, take time away from you, um, and that sort of thing. And they had uh, some data here and there, but primarily it was just in those um, those match each match statistics. So every international um, that they had, um, that's where we were getting that data. And, and did you find that uh, frustrating as a as a strength coach? Did you have your you had your, you had your PhD at the time as well? I imagine so. Yep. Um, did you find it frustrating with your background? Like not having to put, you know, not having to interpret the data much yourself, or or, or what, what conclusions did you draw from it? Um, just from the experience itself, um, and with the data based on my um, my background, um, I was able to take a lot of really positive stuff away, um, especially in terms of just managing data. Um, making sure that we collect things that we really do know are meaningful at the time and have a really good idea about it. Uh, and then from the strength conditioning standpoint, just being able to um, 
you know, it's ha having the awareness that it is a really long-term process. And even though I was working with them for a little over a year, it's it's like you, you got to be there day in and day out to really understand everything that's going on. And I had to tell myself that a lot. It's just, you know, be, be aware that, you know, I wasn't the strength conditioning coach at the time. And right. I had a gentleman named, by the name of uh, Ian Gibbons. Um after a while and he's still with the, uh, doing the strength conditioning for the team and he's fantastic and he and I had some really great conversations once I was able to meet with him back in April 17 um, but it was just one of those things where um, I tried to offer advice where I could and when I was asked and then try uh, anything that I had kind of observed and seen along the way I tried to be as you know, politically correct and just as respectful to the process itself as I could yeah, that's, that's admirable, man. It's admirable because it, it can be frustrating. And we've seen it. Like I've had a, another strength coach from the UK, Sam Portland, on, and, and he actually ended up quitting his job. That He was at a national team uh, simply because they wouldn't take what he was, you know, he, 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 he would take the data, he would interpret it. But at the end of the day, the head coach is who's in charge, right? And it's, you know, if what they think is the, at the end of the day is the most important thing. Yep. That's oh that speaks to me on many many levels. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And I won't I won't pry too much <laughs> to have you go into details on that sort of stuff, but it it is interesting and um so I would like to find out did you have did you find that there was any any sort of data that ended up really significantly helping the team or was it a case of, you know, each game is incredibly different, incredibly dynamic in its own, but like by nature, and therefore, like what you could really derive from it is very difficult, like long, like yeah. short term, especially. I think a big thing that we were able to take away from it, and um, was that each game is incredibly dynamic, like you just said, like that. That's a huge component, but when you have enough data of it, the same individuals over time, but mm -hmm. also a large number of individuals over time, uh, and you have that conversation with the coaches, okay, who's really actually good? And who would you like, like, what's your ideal lock? What's your ideal prop? What do you want to see in a scrum half? And how can we, like, what can we observe? Like, those characteristics, do they exist in the data set? And if they do, now let's start to describe the ideal person in position. Yeah. And not necessarily tailor somebody to that, but to use it as a way, as a part of the selection process, as to say, okay, this person was really good because they exhibited these traits. Obviously, everybody has intangibles that you can't quantify, but maybe when the selections come up and you have these camps of people and you're looking and you have the data on those people from camps, you can start to see, oh, they actually have the makings of this person or they have the makings of these people, one good, one bad. Maybe, you know, who, who are we actually trying to develop and where can we find that next person? And that was a major component to it as to for, like from a talent ID standpoint uh, yeah. as well as a, a, a developing standards um, on top of that because – Kind of like I already said, is that you know you don't want to make have everybody like apply like shoot for one just random kind of level, but it's at least a goal to try to get to, and then it starts to learn. Oh, okay, this person's only achieving this many tackles in a game, whereas their position historically has you know 15 more. What are they doing, and how are they choosing? Or where where are they positioning themselves to to make that not happen, and how can we help them from the actual practice perspective to get those numbers up 
if that's what we have deemed to be meaningful. That was really where the power came from. And it was really easy to like make those numbers and then it just becomes execution of that, um, where, which I think is where a lot of people will say is the, probably the hardest part. Yeah, indeed. That's awesome. But that's a that's a perfect way of sort of summarizing it. And we've got a we've got a, a data analyst for the Glendale Raptors coming on actually next week onto the podcast. Nice. So yeah. So it'd be interesting to see what he says in relation to that. But I know when I was playing there, most of the data like when I was just there, they they just started analyzing all the data on the players and I was a I was a player myself and it was just a result of it just ended up being a case of who ran the most at, tra- uh, at training. <laughs> like yeah. that, that was kind of it. And it, it was like, well, I was, you know, I was in a certain position or you'd play a certain pattern where you didn't have to run that much and you'd, you'd still get grilled. And it's like, well, I'm not just going to run for the sake of it. Like, what are we, what is the data trying to like lead us to do? You know? Yeah. That's a good way to make the athletes really not trust the, the tech. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, we didn't have any of the GPS stuff with that when I was with USA, but um, I was actually a sports scientist doing data analytics for Texas A&M football. Oh, wow. Um, I just I had actually just stopped that job right before I start, started working with USA Rugby because I took a professor role at the University of Northern Iowa, which is where I am now. Um, and that job was like, you know, it, there's a lot of education that goes into it. Like that GPS tech, athletes have to believe you. The coaches have to believe what you're saying, and you got to be really cognizant of every all the feedback that you provide because it's major big brother feelings. And yeah. that's the last thing you want is for athletes to feel like, oh, great, now coach is going to grill me because I was doing everything that I saw was right at the time, but now some piece of technology says that I was wrong. Like That's a super slippery slope that all of us really have to be aware of um, that are in this realm. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I completely agree. And so then, I guess from there we can we talk about your your own experience as a coach. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Whether like before you got into the data or even after, are there any sort of specifics you look at for um, for your rugby players in general um, in terms of like a needs analysis, or is there anything that you like you can try and target, and that's either with crossover athletes or athletes that are already playing rugby that you just want to try and improve. Um, so for me, I didn't get into that until I was like after coaching. Um, my biggest thing was, and all the athletes that I worked with, they're very new to the game. Um, and it was about the, the, the simp, the simp, like breaking a game down to its simplest components, using things like small sided games to really emphasize, uh, you know, teach the techniques prior, use them in the small-sided games, and then build from there. Build the foundation of fitness, make the thing fun, and then kind of make your decisions after that as to what you see and where and what needs addressed. But from the strength conditioning standpoint, um, and in my role right now, just as a sports scientist, what I, what I really care about is managing volume, and volume being physiological, but also like just psychological load, just like total load. And how we can manipulate that, you know, if you're familiar with Tim Gabbett's work on how can we take an individual that's doing X amount of work, get him to a place that is more work, but in a manner that is an appropriate speed, so that way we're not taking them from zero to 100 right away. It's okay, let's take them to zero, 
20, 40, 60, 80, 100, and then they did that in a manner in which is they're able to adapt to and they're able to actually, you know, not break but also succeed at that level. Um, and I do that like doing just simple things like with session RPE. I'm a big fan of daily questionnaires when we can get them to actually be filled out. Um, but it's, you know, that combination of using the inter the um, like the internal load so like GPS is fantastic, but Session RP does the same. But then also all the externals. You know, how are you happy today? What's your body weight doing? What's your heart rate? You know, do you did you follow your nutrition protocol yesterday? Oh, you didn't eat for twelve hours. That's going to influence things. Yeah. And so it's like for me, it's how can we educate um, and actually get get the little things right. I think a lot of us, and I've heard it in multiple places where, you know, are trying to be innovators. We're trying to do this, that, and the other. Well, if you're an innovator, that, there's an underlying assumption that you're doing this, the basics correctly when I think anybody would agree that that's generally not true. Like, there's always a way to enhance the basics. And those are the basics for a reason because they have the biggest, like, foundation. Yeah. And let's build that and get it right first. And then if we need to innovate, we can Oh, there's so many different um, avenues I can go off of what you just said there, man. That's really <laughs> good, man. Um, I want to go back to the, the first thing you said about coaching, about playing a lot of small-sided games. I, I love that, and I love that you're a sports scientist that, that believes in that as well because I coach a, a men's club here. I'm head coach here. And like I'd say 90% of what we do is play games because mm-hmm. a lot of these guys are either new to rugby or, or they're experienced, and it doesn't really matter either way, but... You learn, like, you know, you learn the mastery of the game by playing the game. It, it seems here that, I don't know if it's a, an American football background or influence or what, what, whatever it is, but people just seem obsessed with doing these drills that, like, yeah, yeah they, can, they can help skills and they can help other like, aspects of the game, but they don't if, you, if there's no real context to them. And, and, and it, sometimes it's very, people struggle a lot to see the context. And I think... It's it's the games that are so so important to play, but at the same time, where I struggle because I'm also an S and C coach, I struggle with that because it's very hard to measure those to, to measure those games in terms of like training load and, and the volume, as you said. And so that's 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 the real dynamic that we have to face here as like athletes and um, you know of a sport a dynamic as rugby. Yep. Well, that that's an absolute fact. It's I'm I love the small sided games I absolutely do and you're 100 percent right it's an it's American is I'll get out um, doing those drills and repeating the same thing over and over and over and over again it's archaic it, it and it's it's unfortunate because a lot of Americans and the way we're brought up it's I learned from my coach you learned from my coach you learned from or you learned from their coach you learned from their coach you learned from their coach yeah and all of a sudden coach education goes back to the 1950s yeah. Well, we, we learned a little since then, and while those are good, especially when you're trying to teach basic techniques, that technique has to be applied. You know, yeah. there, there's some really interesting stuff coming out about like like the constraints model and how we can, and small-sided games fit perfectly into there, where if we constrain the size of the pitch the, or the number of people there or what they can and can't do, it's going to emphasize a specific component that we want to enhance. Uh, in a game-like manner, which I think is the most important. And it's, it's always been a dream of mine if I had the technology, like based on like what you said with the, the S&C thing, it's to take a, um, the, the metrics from those individual games and develop almost like a cookbook, like a recipe 
for a coach. Like, okay, coach, here's your menu of all the drills. Here's what they look like from various physiological constraints, like max speeds attained, average speeds, mid yeah. oh. stuff. And then just like, all right, you get, you have 90 minutes or X number of load to do per day. Make your plan as you see fit based on all those things. And it gives the coach the freedom to choose what they want to do. But then from the monitoring standpoint, it's you know, it's like, okay, well, if you have a drill that's, I don't know, three, four meters per minute, that's kind of intense if I, if I remember right, um, that maybe you don't want to do that the entire practice. And if you want to do that and you want to have it be really heavy, well, there's going to be a duration component associated with that where now you're durate, like it's going to be less time that you can spend doing it. So maybe it's only a 30-minute session, but if it's a brutal 30-minute session, you can still get a lot done and it's super meaningful. Um, but it still follows that plan while giving everybody the freedom to be the coach that they want. Yeah, that's – I mean, you're absolutely talking my language and it's just – it, it's so funny because we have this world of strength and conditioning coaches where all they care about is their own data and, and all of that. And, you know, mm-hmm. and there's that, and then there's always that one fat guy that plays fly half or old, old school, you know, prop or whatever it is. And what, for whatever reason, he's always going to get picked, even though the S and C coach hates him because the guy loves him. And at the same time, you've always got that gym monkey who thinks they're doing really great, but they just don't grasp the actual game. And it's, yeah. you, we need to, you know, as as advanced as we are getting with S and C stuff, we we need to, you know, try and find a better marriage between the two. I think. Oh, there's no doubt about that. It's individualization is a big thing of mine. So the monitoring in itself, it's individualization. But we did a part of my research is um, like fatigue, measuring fatigue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, historically, people do vertical jump tests and so on. And it, 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 those tests don't work. They just they don't detect fatigue. Huh. And the literature has come out and said that. Um, there's a couple papers out there that have said, you know, if you really want to do it, you have to know, um, like, how they created that jump. So how much time did they spend in the eccentric? How much time did they spend in the concentric? Because people get to a height, like, just, oh, I need to get there. Okay, I'll get there. But it's how they get there yeah. that is, seems to be the indicator of fatigue or not. And so, like, for me, one of the things that I'm testing and I have data on, I still need to publish, is using um, the drop, the depth jump. And just to have people do a depth jump on a Monday, they do it, and you count the number of, like, you can video it. How much, how much time did they spend on the ground? How much time did they spend on the air? That's a ratio, air to ground. And then you track it over time. And the amount, the, the data that I do have, it's phenomenal. And that it was actually an almost perfect inverse relationship between how much work they did the week before and the fatigue from a team average. Really? Yeah. Wow. And what was even more interesting, though, was that there were some players that just flatlined. Their, their performance was the same. That person also happened to be injured. Like, they weren't able to push themselves to accumulate fatigue. Whereas you have somebody else... You know, typically they're all doing the same amount of work. Like the duration's the same. Their just perception of the effort changes. So the trend is the same. But then you have another person, their fatigue, their, their performance in this test keeps going up and up and up and up. Whereas another one, it just goes down, 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 down. Even with the recovery protocol that does show some rebound, but it's not enough magnitude to actually be greater than what it was. And as soon as they get back into training, it's dropped off again. But what was really interesting was that the person that just kept going up, up and up and up was a, a young person, 
like chrono like their training age and the chronological age were less huh. than the person that kept going down 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 they were almost at the end of their career so while the team was responding in a beautiful manner three different classes of individuals all responding differently and we're getting to a point where we can start to see this stuff actually relatively easily uh, at least considering where we've been that individualization it's it's not far off we just got to keep looking at it yeah absolutely and I, and i think you you got it spot on with the and, and it's fascinating with the data that shows the three different you know stages of careers um, and how they can all respond. Because if you only looked at the team average, you're like, cool, we can keep pushing these guys, and cool, we can keep doing this. But right. it, it just doesn't work. And um, uh, and then, and that's even if the the head coach who has got nothing to do with strength and conditioning is paying attention to that. But even that, I mean, that's a luxury in itself. It's a massive luxury because that's one of the things I struggle with the most is um, like I'll I'll coach people individually and then you know we're we're not ready to peak yet or or we're you know we're just building into it and all of a sudden their team loses by 50 points so mm-hmm. the coach the coach puts them through the ringer on tuesday you know absolutely just makes them non-stop running and uh you know what what can i do now and i'm like okay i guess we're three weeks into it i guess we're already taking some light sessions and stuff you know before you're even ready to do that because your coach has just decided to you know take fitness into his own hands and it's yep it's difficult, and he's trying to build out mental toughness, which uh, brings me to um, something I hear from uh, James, James Smith, if, if you're familiar with much of his work, where he says he, he's trying to advocate for like a head of performance that should actually be overseeing even the head coach's sort of role. Because yeah, at the end of the day, we've got players, big, right? Yep. Yeah, and I think that's that's where you're sort of trained in as well. And it's it's fascinating, really, all of this stuff. And I think... The more we get into it, like you say, the more individual. And even just from a, like, it's, it's almost impossible to do as a team. You know, we, we, it seems like we're going to get to the stage where it's like, uh, if you ever see, you know, like when an NFL, they have almost as many coaches as they do bloody players. And I think it's, it's necessary, right? Because individualization is huge, not just for age, not like training age as well. Like I've got a client who's 30 She's 35, but has only been playing rugby for four years. So her, you know, the physical toll on her body isn't the same as a standard 35-year-old. So she's not going to follow a different, the same protocol as that. Right. And it's just, it's just all over the place. But that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting realm. I'm excited. Don't get me wrong. I'm super excited. But it is, it is a fascinating realm. I'm actually, um, I like the idea of the, the like, um. Uh, like person not necessarily overseeing everything but being on equal playing field with yeah. the head coach because I think if you, like in America anyway it's not going to happen um, it's just too too ingrained into the system um, but like to have one person over the head coach um, but I do think that you know, if the more people come up and the, as head coaches start retiring and there's more and more young people in there there's going to be an awareness of what's really out there and that not everything is black and white that we need to have nuance and we need to have people that are collaborating toward a common goal um that isn't just let's bust them into the ground for mental toughness like i've even we even published a study on mental toughness that looked at um hard physical training and it was uh we did it in volleyball players um at uni Mm -hmm. but 
we actually saw and used a, ma a measure of mental toughness, a validated questionnaire, and the program itself wasn't designed to be mental toughening. Like, it, it legitimately wasn't. It was just a basic gen prep phase that had a lot of, like, um, uh, just b body weight movements, working together as a team, developing that kind of cohesion. But at face value, it did look like what people would call mental toughening where it's you're working together as a team, doing these movements like partner holds and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And really high RPEs, like sixes and sevens, I think, were the average and over the course of a six-week time period, and mental toughness didn't change at all. Like, <laughs> not, nothing changed about it. No. And so it's – and one of my colleagues is – mental toughness is his game, and that's what he studies. And he'll even say, he's like, it's not – like you have to teach somebody how to cope with these things that they're actually like in, in like coming into contact with it's not just go and train hard and then all of a sudden you're metal tougher it's like okay now no i'm now i'm fatigued what do i do what do i think of how can i actually put myself into a positive position to be um, in a better spot you know it's something as simple as if you're tired and you put your hands on your knees it sends a signal to the opponent that hey you know what they're tired we can go to them well, why not just say, you know what, focus on putting, keeping your hand, head up, hands up. Focus on those little things while you're tired, just doing normal training, and that can be the skills that they need. Like, it's more over, it's mental skills. It's not yes. just yes, yes, yes. people into the ground, but it's... <laughs> That's yeah. another old school thing, right, that's carried over. Yeah. I've always said, uh, I always steal the line from Man on Fire when he says there's no such thing as tough. It's just trained or untrained. And like you've obviously got, and then so, like mental toughness is a, a combination of being as fit as you can and handling the, you know, being as uh, prepared as you can to handle whatever the task is. And then, yeah, at, at absolute psychological skills, not. And you don't get that from beating people up or, or making them go for a massive run together or any, anything like that. It's. Nope. It's its own thing, and we got to treat it better. It's funny. There's a when I was doing my dissertation, um, I researched a study that was on um, people that like think that they're good, mm -hmm. but they're really not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually tend to perform pretty well, as opposed to people that are legitimately good but don't have that confidence, that self-efficacy. And that's really where it comes from is like, how can we develop the self-efficacy and the skills to like be confident in those rough scenarios? A part of it. Yeah. Train hard. Let, like, let's do it. I, I think this field gets knocked a lot. Oh, you're trying to make people softer. You're not training as hard as like, no, we're trying to train hard when we want to train hard. Yeah. We're trying to make the body as best prepared. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, um, <laughs> it's a fun world. <laughs> yeah, indeed it is. Um, and on that, on that sort of, you know, people saying it's soft and stuff. So, have you found that, um, like, what, have you found that just have you gone back to RPE session RPE or, or, or um, yeah, just training session RPE is your best measurement for preparedness at the minute? Like for for most people, is that the easiest one that's available to you, or is there something else like the depth jump? Is that going to give us a better insight? Honestly, heart rate's my favorite. Okay. Uh, using, like, I train um, for like 50Ks for myself now, 
And even when we were at A&M, we used heart rate and session RPE like as our primary determinants, uh, especially when you start applying things like um, heart rate load, mm-hmm. where you take the um, like how much time they spent in a given um, percentage of max heart rate and then multiply that by some arbitrary unit factor, which it's usually like if it's 10 minutes within 50 to 60% of heart rate max, it's 10 minutes times one. Whereas if it's 95% plus, it might be times, or 90% plus, it might be duration times five. You know, something like that. And add that together. And that's how hard their heart worked to do whatever work they were doing. Mm-hmm. Now, if you know how much work they did and how hard their body had to work to do it, you can start to determine adaptation or maladaptation. Whereas if they work, they do less work, like internal work, but still do the same amount externally, that's a positive adaptation. Their body's working less through the same thing. Yeah. Whereas alternatively, if they're starting to work harder and they're not doing as much, well, that's maladaptation. Like I use that personally when I'm training for my 50Ks. I'll actually, I'll, I won't use pace or anything. I'll have difference in my heart rate. I know the range I won't be If I get done, I see that I'm at like a nine-minute mile. Awesome. And then three weeks later, I see I'm at the same heart rate, and I did the same route, and, I, now, and it's the same temperature. And now I'm at a, you know, an 8.45, and guess what? That's positive. Whereas conversely, if it's a 9.30, well, maybe I need to recover. Um, so it's that kind of thing, like measuring the internal response to the training stimulus. Um, that I prefer with heart rate. Yeah. Um, but since it is tech and it does cost, I do think that session RPE can be very useful. Um, but the, just like I kind of alluded to, you have to be aware of what what environmental conditions and constraints are new or the same. You know, if it's the same weather, same the literal same practice day in and day out, um, then, it, yeah, you know what? You can actually start to see, okay, all right, they're responding appropriately. Um, but it's, you know, there, there's a lot of caveats to that part. Um, so it, it is kind of like the, having the heart rate monitors is nice because even though it is tech, they are yeah super cheap compared to things like GPS systems, which are kind of meh, in my opinion, in terms of their actual use. Like yeah. It's not, not going to do anything to, to help a coach change their opinion <laughs> exactly yeah so that's kind of where i stand on it yeah and and then if you were to if you were to see that an athlete has you know in the even in the middle of a session or yeah let's say let's say in the middle of a session so you know they're doing the same they're, they're trying to gave, go for the same thing that they did last week but you know that they're they're pretty stressed out maybe they've just they've got a deadline coming up for work or something and they've just been had a real stressful week there's you know been fighting with whoever at home or whatever it is and then they go and do that same session and their heart rate's like way out of whack it's it's the whole session seems a lot harder what would you say to someone that's experiencing that do they just go home and say look let's just leave it for another day and come back or what uh i think it's context dependent um what you have to look at is you know if it's a if it's a single day thing um you know what? Let's go out and do it. Like this is the goal for today. This is our objective. Let's go out and actually knock this thing out and do it successfully. Maybe you manipulate the constraints a little bit yeah. so that the individual is more successful in what they do um, to give them that kind of positive boost that they may need. Um, but if you start to see it day in and day out, like two, three days in a row, at that point, then I would actually start to say, hey, you know what? This might not be random, or this might not be an acute like thing. 
like just a one-off, you know, argument with significant other where it may be. Um, it might be more chronic in nature, and so maybe we do need to start backing off. Um, and then it's also time of season dependent. Are they, if they're in preseason and they're having all this extra load going on, well, maybe, you know, they, they just have to kind of go through with it, through it and yeah. accept it. Or it depends if they're in preseason, they got a lot of extra load going on, and they're older, and they can't handle the volumes, and this is just adding onto their load. Maybe they do need to be backed off. So it, it does become very individual and context specific. You know, if it's off season and you're not going to compete again for four months, let's go. Sorry, we got to get this work in. Yeah. Uh, you know what? You're, you'll, you'll be all right. Um, let, let, let's roll. And just being there and talking to them. I actually listened to, um, we had a conference here last weekend, and there was an Olympic weightlifting coach, um, Christos Iakovu, um, and he was talking about how their pro training program, where it, they always were training with really high weights, not really high volumes, you know, one or two reps per set for only a couple sets, but they were, they trained multiple times a day. Yeah. And they would have conversations with the athlete, and like, okay, you got to go in, you hit your weight. And if they don't hit it, you know, obviously these are driven people and they want to hit that weight. So you start to have a conversation. You're like, all right, what's going on? How are things going? Like, we can't let data take away the personal side to it. And so that that way they know, you know, there is somebody out there for them. You know, it's, it's supposed to help drive decisions, not do all of the decision making. Uh, and so that's kind of like, you know, a lot of context, but also having that one-on-one -on -one conversation of, you know, I'm here for you. Let's... Let's knock this out. You're almost there. Tweak these couple things and give them the tools to succeed, and then hopefully they do. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And again, it's that, but it's that blend between looking too much, like look, getting as much data as we can, but knowing exactly what what the purpose of that data is. It's not just to say, oh, black. This is black and white. This must happen because this data says this. It's it's always going to be a blend, and yeah. Yep. That's why my. Yep. Answers are, I'm always, always, always wishy-washy with everything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really do hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure that you're subscribed so you can get every single future episode delivered directly to your phone without any sort of hassle whatsoever. If you'd like to win some cool free stuff, then you can go ahead and go give us a five-star review, ideally on iTunes, but you can use whatever podcasting service you do to give us a five-star review. Right now, we're giving away a three a free three-month subscription to Team Rugby Muscle. That's our flagship strength and conditioning program where you can get world-class strength and conditioning delivered directly to your phone so that you can make the most amount of progress in the simplest way possible. And last but not least, you can download 50 free conditioning sessions just by visiting rugby-muscle.com. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we'll see you in the next one.